0: This is the Happy Are You Poor? podcast, discussing topics related to radical Catholic community. This is your host, Malcolm Schlenderfritz, and joining me today is my co-host, Peter Land, from Philadelphia, and our special guest today is Philip. Uh, Philip is a really amazing guy. Uh, We met at a conference where I was talking to a, a group about all my ideas on life and politics and everything else in between. And after Philip and I had argued for, I don't know, fairly late into the night, uh, he called me the next day to see if we could can carry on the argument further at a better time. And since then, we have been arguing about everything ever since. He is probably the best debating partner I've ever met, and he actually reads uh, books and articles that I suggest, which is rather amazing in, in my experience. So um, glad to have him join us. And our before we launch into our topic, I also wanted to say that a listener contacted me to say that the podcast was really great, but that it destroyed his headphones. And so I wanted to warn everybody that we're not liable for any damage to equipment from listening to our podcast. And more importantly, we're not liable for any damage to people's brains either. If after listening to these podcasts, you can't see the world in the same way or have new thoughts that won't go away. Well, you know, we're sorry about that, but we're not liable. Uh, everyone is listening at their own risk.
1: I think that's part, partly what we're going for, Malcolm, just to add.
0: That, that could be true. Yes. Maybe, maybe that's the desired effect, but desired or not, in any case, if you don't like the results to your brain, um, we're not responsible. And, Our topic today is economics, and economics is a fairly controversial topic because it's so closely related to politics. As soon as political or economic topics come up, everyone's going to disagree. So I just wanted to issue a cautionary note that we three here on the podcast today probably disagree and could very likely disagree before the end of our time here. But if you disagree with us, you know, we'd like to hear about it. Uh you could, if not, become a podcast guest, at least write in and get your point considered. So if you don't like what you hear, give us something better. We're always always willing to entertain uh, new ideas.
1: Malcolm, can listeners um, send in requests through the website or how how would that happen?
0: Uh, yes, uh, listeners can comment through the website. The iTunes feed does not enable comments, but the website does. So there's a comment feature for every podcast. So to start our discussion on economics, I thought a good question would be, why do we have to care about the economic role? What, what, what do we mean when we say economics? And why is it important to engage in when we're trying to live the Christian life in a more radical way in a community setting? Why can't we just focus on culture or praying together, having meals together? What is it about economics that makes it important for the Christian life?
1: Well, I'm no expert on economics, but my understanding is that economics um, has to deal with the distribution of goods and things that we need for everyday life. You know, when I, I think of, when I remember reading about, the root word of economics from Greek, it had to do with household, the household. And so I, I appreciate that. Like economics has to do with like the nuts and bolts of living and how we acquire the things we need. Um, so in a, in a way it touches on every aspect of our life, uh, because we all, we all need things. We're not completely self-sufficient to, um, bring back a topic that we, we started with in one of the earlier podcasts. We are somewhat codependent um, or interdependent and economics becomes that means through which we acquire the things we need and we work together to share, share the goods that are common to all of humanity. So um, I appreciate economics to the degree that it impacts my life and for us living in America, in this global economy, it it does. It has a radical impact on everything we do, whether we acknowledge that or not.
2: Yeah, I, uh, first of all, I want to say appreciate you both having me on. And, um, you know, I, I am... On this podcast, using a pseudonym, partly because I uh, was anticipating at some point today we'll get into some contentious territory, but I feel like we we just jumped right in from the start. I really appreciate hearing from Peter about how economics uh, deals with the distribution of goods and with the um, the goods that are common and meant for the use of all. So, for, for my part, I think the question is important because. As Christians, we understand that we're not pure disembodied spirits. Rather, we are human persons composed of matter and form, and as such, we interact with the world of nature and and the world of culture in a material way, at least in a partially material way. So the ways that the material world around us is structured are going to influence our behavior, And ultimately are flourishing. So a little pithy phrase that I tend to use is that, you know, the fundamental question of political economy is who owns what? Who owns what? And the answer to that question determines, of course, how conducive or not conducive to flourishing the economy is going to be.
1: Can I just ask for you to follow up on that point and maybe clarify what you mean by asking that question who owns what and that will determine um the degree of economic flourishing
2: yeah who owns what okay so you know and, and honestly the the there's an addendum it's who owns what and what do they do with it that's the full question so one of the uh one of the worst mistakes you can make today living in in the in the modern world in the west in particular is to think that the uh, economy that you grew up you grew uh you were um, born into is sort of just like the way things are naturally, and that it's not really any kind of um, political ideology or, or fixed set of conditions at all. It's just, um, it's just, it's just uh, the natural bartering and trucking that human beings have always done since time immemorial. That's that's the biggest lie you could swallow. So, so we live in a particular arrangement, particular economic arrangement, where we have something called uh, private means of production in the hands of a few people. Um, it uh, The origins of this system are really well outlined in a book by Ellen Meekson's Wood called The Origins of Capitalism, A Longer View, and though it's called that, it's actually a very short book, and she traces the origins of our our arrangement of who owns what. Really they only go back you know, a few hundred years to, um, to the British countryside during something called the Enclosure Movement that uh, I'm sure Malcolm can talk more about. But throughout history, there have been so many different ways of so, there have been so many different ways societies have answered that question: who owns what? Sometimes things were owned by no one, right? Like the commons or the the land in the Americas before uh, colonialism. Other times, there are deliberate decisions to have everything owned in common. Other times, there are decisions to have certain uh, entities, like the state, own certain things uh, or not others, and then uh, and then intermediary institutions like guilds can own things. And then those things owned, well, that's important too, right? What kind of property does the state own? What kind of property does the guild own? And uh, and the reason why the question is what instead of just who owns property is because there are different kinds of property and some have more bearing on your life than others, right? Like the means of production are a particular kind of property. That's the kind of property people use to generate wealth. And in our system, that's the kind of property people use to generate commodities. So... Um, we can get into the weeds later, but for now, I just want to leave you both with the sense that, and the listeners, with the sense that um, we, whether or not we have uh, ever thought about it or uh, decided whether or not it's right or wrong, you know, we all live in a very specific and very contingent, and actually very recent on the historical timeline, very recent arrangement of who owns what, in which that special kind of property is protected by the state and it's privately held. In the hands of um, a few people, and the rest of us have to usually work for a wage.
0: Philip, thanks for bringing up the idea that our current economy is not just natural, just the way it's always been. I think that's a temptation in any culture to imagine that the way we do things is the only way, or at least the only viable way. And I think it's especially problematic in the modern world because we have we have this idea of progress, that everything just gets better and better. So however we do it now it must be better than ways that were done in the past. And also, it's particularly a problem in the United States where we have a certain kind of warped patriotism that makes us feel that the way we do it here in the present moment is better than what the way anyone else at any other time might have done it. For, for those listeners who have not perhaps uh, thought very much about economics. It might be worth clarifying a few terms. I know, Philip, you use the term commodities, and what is a commodity as opposed to wealth? And for that matter, what is wealth? And, And as far as the means of producing wealth, what are some examples of the kinds of property that would be considered productive property, the means of producing wealth? What does that encompass?
2: Thanks, Malcolm. Those are great questions. Yeah, let me break it down further because I yeah, sometimes I I I might forget myself and I don't know what what uh where your listeners are at and where they've how much they've read. And I for what it's worth, I'm not an expert here on, on economics, but these are concepts that are used, you know, even in the in the tradition of Catholic social teaching. These are concepts that are used in the papal magisterium. So it seems good to have some familiarity with what these words mean uh I'll start with wealth you know as far as i understand it wealth is are the uh, the assets you own minus your liabilities so everything you own and commodities are a product that is made to be sold so maybe we can break commodity down cuz commodity is is really important i'm thinking of you know there's a line in the papal encyclical quadri anno uh, released on the 40th anniversary of Rerum novarum that reads that uh, something, like, I'm quoting from memory, but something like, as our predecessor has said, human labor cannot be bought and sold as a mere commodity. So what does that mean when human labor is bought and sold as a commodity? Well, uh, when I think about some of the things that you produce, Malcolm, like you, pr- you, uh, okay, so pardon the language here, but it's gonna be confusing. You produce a lot of produce. You, you make you, you grow vegetables and fruits, right? And you make those to eat them or to share them. A commodity is something that's made just to be sold, and in particular to be sold for a profit. So commodities are easily, easily dispensed with, easily exchanged. And when human labor becomes a commodity, that means that all the particulars about you and your being, your social life, your personality, and your dignity are erased from the equation because your labor exists for the sole purpose of being bought and sold on the market. Does that answer some of your question?
0: Yes, thanks, Philip. That was great. Uh, I think, too, it might be a good thing to point out for our listeners that when we say means of production, classically, those are divided into at least two groups called the land and capital. And land is a wide term, meaning any of the forces of nature. So uh, the fact that the wind blows over a particular hilltop uh, could get captured by a wind turbine, that's a form of means of production is the wind. Um, and then capital would be the wind turbine that gets put up. The wind turbine is not to be consumed, it's to produce electricity that we can then consume at, as wealth or exchange as a commodity, so that the when we say who owns the means of production, We're talking about who owns the land, all the natural resources, in particular farmland, but also any of the other forces of nature, and who owns capital, the kind of wealth that is used to create other wealth, from the shovel I use in the garden, to the factory that makes shovels, to the wind turbines, all the things that are not valued in and of themselves. Nobody really wants a shovel unless, I guess, it's an antique, at which point it stops becoming capital and becomes a kind of wealth Um, Nobody wants a shovel for itself, they want a shovel so that they can cultivate a bed of cabbages.
2: Thank you, Malcolm. And one of the main reasons this is so important to think about, these questions of who owns what and what do they do with it, is because it affects affects what we do, me and you, almost everyone probably listening. It affects what we do most of the time. And so in our current arrangement, because of the fact that, you know, we don't have that, uh, what is it that G.K. Chesterton says, you know, where the worker owns his own shovel. Because we tend not to have this arrangement where workers own mean, the means of production. They, they do spend their time selling the only thing that they do own, which is their labor. And that usually takes the form of a wage and a, a 40-hour work week or maybe more than that. I know people who work a lot more than 40 hours, and uh, I wonder if, given the choice, they'd rather do something different.
0: Thanks, Philip. Uh, Thanks for bringing that up. I think for me, the importance of the economy comes down to the fact that every aspect of our culture, every aspect of our society has a certain power to shape our mindset, that we spend very little of our daily time in church or even in prayer for that matter. On average, even if you spend a few hours a day, the bulk of your day is probably spent in making your living and how you and the community around you does that will have a huge impact on how you see the world, how you see yourself, how you see, um, God and his relation to you, um, if, if we see ourselves in a certain way in, in the workday world, we won't be able to shut that way off just because we show up in church. And, and that's where I want to clarify something for our listeners, that I am interested in living the Christian life. I'm not particularly interested in what, say, happens in D.C. So when we're talking about the economy, I am not particularly interested in what I think our president should do to the economy. Of course, it'll have an impact on our lives what he does, but really I feel that if we have to wait until the folks in DC are living a Christian life whether in economics or any other aspect, we're going to be waiting a long time. I'll probably be dead before I get to start living a Christian life on that scheme. So, when we speak about economics, I'm also I'm, I'm trying to focus both on what's wrong with our current order of things And then what we can do differently, how we can live the Christian life in an economic sense, and how that would have to look different than the dominant economic vision of our mainstream culture. Because politics is ultimately downstream of culture. Everyone imagines that if they could just get the perfect government into place, Uh, everything would be perfect. But that's not not the case. They actually follow our lead. Uh, We should create laws by living them. No, the, the imposition by force of a law that the society does not approve of is usually a failing project. And that's certainly not the way that our country works. In our country, social changes happen first. Laws swing over afterwards. So for us for our economic life together, I think one of the biggest problems that we're facing is that our society, our economic, the way our economic society works is fundamentally unjust in that what we do, our simple actions of making a living, buying and selling are hurting people in other places but it's hidden from our view. William T. Kavanaugh wrote a wonderful book called Being Consumed. It's absolutely fascinating. But one of the points he brings up is that if you got a room of Christians together and asked them, would you kill somebody for a cheaper shirt? The answer would be no. None of us are the kind of people who would kill someone for a cheap shirt. Certainly not the kind of people who would kill somebody to avoid spending 10 more dollars on a shirt. And yet we are all that sort of person. We're all buying cheaper goods that were made in sweatshops where people literally die from overwork and exhaustion making these articles of clothing and other goods that we buy. When we could, of course, spend a little more and buy goods that were not made at the cost of someone else's life, but we don't. Our economic structure is oriented such that the cheaper good will usually displace the more expensive one. And it it does tie also into the poverty concept we tied into last time that in our society, we all have to individually, um, we're all in competition with one another as individuals. And that is directly opposed to the Christian vision of living together as the mystical body of Christ. If in our work and in our daily living, we see ourselves as individuals in competition it's very unlikely that in church we will be able to see ourselves charitably as the mystical body of Christ, so that we don't need the president of the United States to come out with a new bill that radically restructures our economy in a more Christian dimension. In fact, that probably wouldn't be um, desirable. What we need to do is to live as Christians, regardless of what our wider economic system tries to disciple us into doing.
2: Thanks, Malcolm. And a point of clarification: I mean, when I when I say that the society as a whole answers the question "Who owns what," um, that doesn't mean that um, we have to acquiesce. And in a sense, each of us has to answer that question at each of the levels of our lives. So, I, on a previous episode, um, I think it was the second part of the community podcast, you. You talked about your, the um, urban farming project and the, the ways that you have to decide. I, I mean, it, they're kind of implicit questions for you, Malcolm, but you know, at a certain point, you do have to decide how to divide up a plot of land. Um, are you going to be giving people seeds? Or are you going to be selling people materials? Are you going to have a shed of tools that's available for everyone? When people get married... They have to decide whether they want a joint checking account or not. These are questions that we all have to answer and parishes have to answer that. Churches have to answer these kinds of questions. And just because we were born into a society that answers the question a particular way, of course, it doesn't mean that at uh, all of the micro levels of our lives, like our families, our churches, our communities, our organizations, we can answer that question differently. It seems to me that's actually part of the way that you change society is by demonstrating in your lived experience that other ways of answering that question are more fruitful for the Christian life.
1: Well, great points, uh, Malcolm and Philip. What happened to me in my life was that up until about college, I had really very little awareness of how my life was impacting other people from faraway places like you mentioned, Malcolm, uh, perhaps, you know, in a, um, sweatshop factory in another country. I think for the most part, it's very easy to live, um, somewhat unconsciously, um, in relationship to the actions that we have and the things that we are spending our money on in particular. I think that's one of the, um, kind of the vices of our of our culture is that we're kind of unknowingly participating in a system that is interconnected throughout the world but is very much um negatively impacting other people other peoples and other cultures or at least there's kind of like a a negative um the, the the weights are kind of lopsided in our favor at times we have a lot more um Wealth and so I guess our our purchasing power. Um, I don't know. I guess it, it. We can get a lot more out of the current economic system. I guess is what I'm trying to say. So when I was in college, be- becoming aware of the global economy. I mean, I think that is a fundamental starting point. Is learning about where. Our money is going, how it's impacting others, and feeling responsibility, cultivating a, a responsibility for our everyday economic activity. Um, knowing that it is impacting people. It, I think at times it's easy to, to convince ourselves that we're just kind of, you know, um, it's, it doesn't have much of a consequence. And so feeling, um, as I, as I became aware that, our money um, plays a role in other people's lives, um, it became important to me to spend it in ways that were not only uh, responsible from my perspective, but supporting healthy local initiatives, um, small businesses, not just feeding the the purse of some global national corporation. um, and, And wanting to Spend money in a way that was supporting the livelihood of peoples around the world as well, ensuring fair wages and and other things like that. So I think um, it is a, it's a good place to start, at least for me. Is is this need to be aware of the implications and consequences of our economic activity, our buying and spending. Um, in the world in which we live, because it is a it's such a global economy
0: Peter, I really like what you said about how easy it is to be unaware. I think that's a key aspect of our current economic system that it's it's sort of virtualized. Things just appear on the shelves. <clears throat> you know none of us see a thing through. We all see some little aspect of a bigger reality that we then participate in. Uh, G.K. Chesterton talked about how in our culture, of course, in his day almost 100 years ago, it was less. But even then, he said, few people were there at the beginning and the ending of a thing, a full circle. And today it's become even less so, that we see the last step of our goods on the shelf and our family has decided it makes very little sense you know we talked in the last podcast about being in solidarity with others and how being in solidarity doesn't really help anyone but we decided that so that we could be in solidarity in some small way with people who work in sweatshops that we would not buy any goods from a country that didn't have good labor protections which comes down to only buying goods from the united states canada europe Japan, a few other countries, and so we, you know, we've been doing it for about three years now, ever since reading Kavanaugh's book, and it's really difficult because it really it really puts a break on one's ability to consume. You'll go into the store with money to spend, and item after item you'll take it up down from the shelf. It's like, well, it's from China, Vietnam, Bangladesh, uh, Thailand, any any of these places where Sweatshot labor is likely to be used and environmental protections aren't followed. And in some cases, it's amazing. I've tried when I was trying to buy a particular product, I asked the seller, it wasn't marked. So I asked the seller where it was made, they didn't know. They directed me back a chain further. As I went through this big supply chain, eventually I got to some multinational company and they said, We have no clue where that product came from. I mean, we've got factories all over the world, you can't really expect us to know where this stuff comes from. Nobody is in charge. It's it's running by itself, and that's an alarming thing because if we let our if we in, in the Christian moral tradition, it's known that if we sit down and just let our minds run by themselves, they're likely to run wrong. If we succumb to that sort of illness, that sort of drifting and daydreaming, it's bad for our persons. We've built an economy on the idea. This kind of drifting, this kind of lack of control, this purposelessness, this fragmentation is the best way that will somehow, apart from our willing any good, that good will just flow up from us all pursuing our individual interests. And really, that seems a very naive and questionable assumption from a Christian standpoint. How could we expect that good things would just sort of appear out of a void when that's not the way it is with anything else. In everything in life, doing the good on whatever level takes effort, takes attention, and even then it's hard to do. Even if one's trying one's best to do what's right or to do a good job with something, it's likely to go wrong at least some of the time. And now in our economy, in our relations with one another, we're being asked to believe that a rising tide lifts all boats so long as we shop, Everything will go fine. We can rest at peace and and only good will come of this. When obviously the results are quite otherwise. So that part of what we could do if we built a more local Christian economy is that we could know the people that we work with, know the things that we are working on, and really attempt then to live out the Christian life in a way that's impossible when we only see one little snippet of a process that impacts lives that we're never going to
1: see or experience.
2: The point about how much of our um, how much of our economy runs in the background of our lives and is hidden from from us is really horrifying. and today you know today uh, this week in particular, I'm hearing a lot in the Catholic media world about a term called remote cooperation with evil. and it's I mean, you want to talk about cooperation with evil. You can't buy any piece of electronic equipment a phone, a laptop, the electronics in your car, all of that is going to be sourced. It's going to, uh, if you follow the line of production, you're going to find slave camps and you're going to find dead children, and particularly in the Congo. And, and then you want to talk about the exchange of money between rich and poor countries. Uh, I mean, I remember you know, learning that for every $1 of aid that developing countries give the global south, those global South countries lose $24 in net outflow. But you only ever hear about the aid. You never hear about the loss and the exploitation. So this system that produces uh, some relative level of comfort for some percentage of Western people requires just constant brutal exploitation. We don't see that aspect of it. Um, you know, for for us, it's, it's kind of just uh, this... Um, it becomes like banal and mundane, but that like Malcolm and Peter, like you say, that level of comfort that we have is is only given to us because of just brutal exploitation of the poorest of the poor. And also, I appreciate Malcolm, your point about the way that there's a kind of like a sleight of hand that happens when people talk about our economy. There's like a magic that happens where if enough people pursue the vice of like what the ancients would call acquisitiveness, then magically on a macro scale, it transforms into the virtue of justice or order. That's that kind of magic doesn't happen ever, right? Vices don't transform into virtues just because enough people pursue them. So on that, on that note, I had, uh, I kind of had an interesting question for, for all three of us, which is uh, what would you say is the fundamental problem with our, economic order would you say Ma- malcolm that it's that it's precisely that that it requires us to believe in the transformation of vice into virtue or what would be kind of the number one reason to think there's something wrong with the state of affairs economically
0: uh philip i would think that that's pretty near the top of the my reasons to doubt that our current system is um Inherently just or inherently Christian, just that philosophic mismatch of intentionality that we can intend evil. It, it, you know, like it's commonly known in in Christian circles that we can't do evil that good may come, and this is sort of a large level that we can actually do evil and even in you know do something that isn't isn't just. And that somehow when we all do it, that we, when we all pursue our individual interest, it will just produce good. I think that's, that's a big problem. I think, though, that there are other problems. And perhaps the other one I touched on, the virtualization of things, comes pretty close. Because we are human embodied creatures. This came up a lot in the podcast on poverty. And our our rational, spiritual souls tend to have a little bit of pride in the sense that we want to transcend that being rooted in the material. And we have somehow been getting closer to that ideal. I mean, you can see it in like the crazy, <clears throat> the crazy trends like transhumanism, where We'll port our minds over to computer technology and live forever in the cloud. Those are fringe views, even if the people holding them are fairly influential in our culture. But I think they represent an actual reality that we already have, that in some senses we imagine we've transcended the material world. You know, just just 3% of the American workforce is engaged in farming, which is our most fundamental connection to the earth, to the land, to the food we eat. And so it's easy for people, you can see uh, people with degrees in economics and other more soft scientific disciplines just forgetting about the material underpinnings of the world. They make the most absurd factual statements, such as, for instance, they say that our economy could keep growing forever, could keep doubling every 20 years forever, and they don't see any limit to it because from the economic standpoint, from the virtualized world of economics, There'd be no reason why a number couldn't double, but they forget that that means a doubling of real resource consumption and nothing can keep growing at that rate forever on a finite planet that we could keep consuming ever more resources. And that's just one small result of our virtualization of our alienation from the work that we're supposed to do. You know, God gave Adam work in the garden and it wasn't a curse. It was a remedial thing. They had wanted to be like God, and he said, Here you go, you're gonna fight some weeds. It was it was a corrective, it was a, a way to show them how limited, how dependent. You know, we, we discussed dependence too in the podcast on poverty, how limited and dependent we were. But probably perhaps due to a theological misreading of work as a curse, a, a, just a total blindness to the fact that work was actually given before the fall. And just became more difficult after. Um, We have bought into this idea that we're going to somehow transcend that. And our individual transcendence of it means that a double share of the burden is laid on others, at which point it becomes a curse. When we shirk the work that we were supposed to do, the others get a double share and collapse under the load. Instead, as St. Paul says, we have to carry one another's burdens. We all have to take part in this instead of feeding off of the suffering of others to achieve our virtualized fantasy land. So I think that those two aspects, the idea that somehow good will come from evil, or at least good will come from a neglect of intending the good, and that our our economy is virtualized, I think those two are the two worst things about our current order.
1: Yeah, thanks, guys. Um, What... I think is a is a great danger, which is what something you guys have, are talking about is um, this growth in our nation of a people who are merely consumers and people who are, are seeking their satisfaction, their joy, their life in things that bring sensu- sensory pleasure, sensual pleasure, um, things that they can consume, products we can buy that bring instant gratification but that have very little depth, that often isolate us from each other, um, that don't bring about uh, a deeper sense of human purpose, meaning, value and real quality of life, as well as like our destiny and what are we created for? What is the purpose for our living? I think economy in its most basic sense is um, is implicated in all of this. Like it it plays an important value. Like Malcolm, you were saying the value and the importance of work and that God gave Adam the task to till the soil and to cultivate a garden, um, to earn our our kind of daily bread in a sense. Um, even though the, the gift and the grace is from God, he requires our participation, um, in a fundamental way in our life and work, that may not always be easy, but it can be also deeply satisfying. Um, and I think we're, in a lot of ways, seeking the easiest life possible. You know, what brings us the most immediate pleasure, happiness? Um, what do I want to do with my life? I mean, I think that's not a bad question, but I think we're losing the, the joy of working with our hands Living simply, um, acquiring goods that are within our means. I guess another danger that is a part of this global economy is, um, the, the opportunity to kind of have whatever we want whenever we want. I mean, Amazon is making this possible. But as opposed to learning how to live within our means, live with what God has given us, um, we're, we're grasping, you know, it's like, I think we're grasping after that apple. Um, this Apple uh, and Malcolm, I think you touched on this a little bit, but kind of like complete human power, you know, over control over my life and um, you know disregard for um, my limitations and the limitations of others. So I guess um, I, I see the the movement in in the current economic trends as being quite dangerous, very dangerous to. Um, our souls and to knowing our, our deeper purpose and being related to others in a very meaningful way. I think the current economy, you know, we come in contact with people, but we're, we're not, we're not like um, implicated with people. We're not interdependent. We're not uh, sharing life together in a way in which we are mutually necessary. Um and that we, we play a vital role in the life of another. So, so for me, um, the important question is, how do we begin to orient our life and um, direct our life and our economic affairs in a way in which we'll bring about um, the greater, deeper good of the human person, not only our soul, but those around us who, who we, I think, are most immediately responsible to you know, I think it's the people in our homes, the people in our neighborhoods, that at the end of the day, that we can have the, the greatest impact on.
2: Thank you, thanks both of you. Uh, so, I really appreciate those those answers. Those are really good, and in some ways different from what I might say. So, it's given me a lot of food for thought. Um, and just to recap, so that I'm understanding you both correctly, Malcolm, It sounds like your major contentions with the current economic order are, one, that there is a supposed transformation of vice on a micro level to virtue on a macro level, which is, of course, impossible, and this virtualization of the world and of work that takes us away from the, the kind of gritty material realities in front of us. And then, Peter, I think you're saying something about, you know, for you, it's this the consumer culture that makes everyone into a an endless consumer right and we kind of give into our baser impulses and we want this uh, the immediate satisfaction of our desires and certainly our economy wants to accommodate that and encourage that as much as possible and that's it's not conducive to the christian life as far as far as i'm understanding is that malcolm is that a, a good assessment of your position
0: yeah, Philip, that's that's a great uh, recap of what I'm talking about, I think.
2: Okay, well, here I will give my answer to that question. And I thought about this a bit before coming on the podcast. I think it's a good one. I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in criticizing the all the different things that are wrong with the current order that we forget to come down to fundamentals. So for for my part, the major problem, the major problem with Our economic order is that it inverts the natural priority of the common good. And this is a pretty philosophical concept that we can get into maybe in another episode. But in our economic order, we are taught, encouraged, incentivized, in some ways required to prioritize our private goods. So these are things that are good for me, not things that are good for me and everyone else. These aren't goods that I can share. And uh, in capitalism, the really the only commandment of capitalism is you have to keep generating profit, and that kind of acquisitiveness is—it's not a good that can be shared. And it—you know—you don't think—you don't think about consequences. You don't think about the impact, direct and indirect, that you're having on on the other the other people in the world, and especially those less fortunate. The only thing you're commanded to do is to increase your own wealth and increase your own profits, care about the bottom line, basically. A second, a second thing I'll say very quickly, I think it's somewhat similar to your issue, Malcolm. Maybe it's a slightly different emphasis, is that capitalism tends to commodify everything. Every aspect of human life becomes something you can trade on the market you know, I was joking with a friend about how you know it's like you can you can buy and sell hugs, you know, on, on on Craigslist. Like, oh my goodness, like human love and support. There's a social critic named Christopher Lash who writes about how so much of the work that was done in the 18th and 19th centuries by by women and uh, and people and families has become something that you get a degree for and you get paid to do. So, in a sense, everything traditional and everything sacred becomes cheapened. And turned into a commodity where but in the past no one would ever think of exchanging certain forms of human affection and care for money, now become just another way to earn a living. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, Philip, I, I really like that point. Because it's true. I remember William T. Kavanaugh. Saying that there was a man who rented out his forehead for advertising space, and he did it. You know, he paid off his college debts. You know, what's wrong? He had a he had a temporary tattoo put on his forehead, advertising. I don't remember. Um, might might have been some brand of aftershave or something. I, I don't remember. Anyway, and he's he thought like, well, I own my forehead. I can rent out my forehead or sell my forehead. But we don't really own our uh, own bodies. We don't own ourselves. And that is why no man can sell himself and no other can buy him. That's why slavery is wrong. We all belong to the Lord. And in a sense, everything, not just our bodies, belongs to the Lord. So that if we see them as something that we have an absolute kind of ownership over, we'll probably not be able to see them as the Christian should.
2: And more than that, we, we see them as, I mean, commodities are almost like intrinsically um, cheap, like metaphysically cheap. You know, the, the most important things in our lives, we would never dream of buying and selling. I remember uh I there were some friends from overseas who came to visit uh to visit my family once and they they weren't yet uh super fluent in English and uh they were practicing Catholics and we passed by a church called Blessed Sacrament and they were having a yard sale and there was a sign that said Blessed Sacrament sale and they were appalled <laughs> because they thought that they were selling the the Blessed Sacrament that's something that no one would ever dream of selling on the market it's for us Christians, the height of our faith, uh, the sacrifice of Christ in the mass that we receive. But um, it's an illustrative point about how, you know, uh, the forehead its part of a human body. I mean, you, how could you use that to advertise aftershave? It's, there's something so offensive about that.
0: Yes, and it, it comes from this idea that the... The individual becomes, becomes just another commodity that we, we talk in, in, in manufacturing about labor costs. Labor costs are something that a manufacturer, a farmer, uh, any capitalist producer attempts to cut down labor costs. It's one of the burdens on the profitability of the operation. If labor costs are too high, um, then you know the, the, the enterprise won't work. But labor costs is a cipher meaning human beings. Uh, There isn't just some abstract labor out there. Labor is a group of human beings, a group of human individuals who are each made in the the likeness of God and you've just reduced them to something you can use. Uh, it's It's not a relation of friendship in any sense of the word. It's just a relation of utility. And this this idea, this commodification of the human being will lead to the destruction of the sanctity of life. I know that you know when we hear a culture of death, we usually think about abortion. But there's other aspects to it. In one sense, we are a contraceptive culture, an anti-life culture, because of the fact that we see other human beings only as useful. We're in that sense, very like a totalitarian country in which everyone is just a cog in the totalitarian machine in which we see others not for themselves, not in the wonder and glory that God made them, but in what they can give us in this case labor. Is this person um, better at working? well, they're more valuable're they're defined by their work so we have you know we've all talked about the many different problems with the current order of things and how difficult they make it to see correctly as God sees the things around us, how difficult they make it to have an authentic Christian spirituality. And then the practical question is, what should we do about this state of affairs? Given what I said earlier about how our um, our culture tends to decide, our economic system tends to disciple us more than anything we do in church. How do we avoid being discipled into a culture of death through our economic order? And that's probably where large disagreements will show up, even among people of goodwill who are all trying to find an answer. There's many different answers, but I think we'll probably have to wait until the second part of this podcast in economics to discuss this. We're starting to run a little long. I do want to leave us with with one more thought, though, that it can be difficult when one starts to see the deep problems in our culture. It can be difficult to avoid becoming a crank. It can be difficult to not end up um, part of this, this small subculture that sees problems, but then doesn't see any problems within oneself, because that's what every cult does. Every cult leader warns his cult followers that the world outside is a terrible place. Here are we who are the good, the right, the ones who see clearly. And therefore, put up with any problems in here because out there, it's so much worse. These, these little subcultures, even if they aren't actually cults, they can have a cult-like feel. And so as we try to find solutions, we can't become isolated individuals with a, a point of view. Otherwise, we'll just become cranks, contrarians for the sake of it. And we can't allow ourselves, if if we find others who share our position, there's the other danger of becoming a subculture. We have to become an actual community that embodies these answers in such a way that we can spread the message of the gospel, that we can draw others in to this new answer, that we can be be an appealing witness to Christ. So I'll I'll leave the listeners with that thought. Uh, in two weeks, we'll have a new podcast up on what exactly we should do about the current state of affairs.
2: Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And for what it's worth, Malcolm, you're uh, definitely my favorite debate partner as well. And uh, Peter, is so good talking to you and hearing from you. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks so much, Phil. Great having you. Great. Always great talking to you. And uh, I look forward to our next conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you both, guys. Have a wonderful, blessed rest of your week.